Yes, we're here. I'm here. You're here. This is the DCC Podcast, and this is the final episode of The Quest. That's right. Today is our fourth and final installment of our series that we're calling The Quest, and today's episode is all about legacy. We all want to leave a legacy behind, one that echoes for generations to come. And when it comes to our quest of financial freedom, our end goal is to leave a legacy that helps spur on others and the next generation. What is a will? What is a trust? What is estate planning? We're going to cover all of this and more as we wrap up our quest to financial freedom. Today's topic is about legacy and uh, estate planning and leaving a legacy. And um, this scripture might... It doesn't talk about finances, but I really love this passage. I give you guys some homework. Jeremiah chapter 35, okay? Jeremiah chapter 35 is a great chapter in the book of Jeremiah. God is talking to Jeremiah. He's giving Jeremiah news to tell the nation of, of Israel, of Judah. And he goes and he talks to them. But God tells him, he said, I want you to go and talk to this family called the Rechabites. The Rechabites is, is an interesting family to learn about in that chapter. Basically, this, the dad, Jeconiah was the dad, and he, he fought with them when, they, when Israel was going through the, the kingdoms, all the issues they were having. And he had told his people, his, his family, to not live in tents, to, to, I'm sorry, to, to live in tents, to don't drink, to don't partake in wine for generations. And these people, his family, they still, were, they still honored him from generation to generation. They obeyed his command. And what I really like about that story, it talks about legacy, right? The legacy that the father had and he instituted into his kids to go on. I know it doesn't talk about finances, but when we talk about finances, when we talk about creating wealth and and our our financial and our money as successes, it's about empowering the next generation. It's about helping them. And hopefully today you're challenged and encouraged by what Dusty has to share with us on the actual financial part of it. But I just want to encourage you to go read Jeremiah 35 and, and be encouraged in how, how God used the Rechabites to encourage Jeremiah to continue to keep preaching the message that he was preaching. So legacy and estate planning, it's an interesting conversation because normally when I do this or we'll do it with the help of an attorney, it's a room of like 55 plus. And we have a little bit of that here. So legacy looks a lot different to that crew because you're probably actively thinking about your legacy. Uh, But I would encourage, of course, we've got younger folks in the room that the time to think about your legacy, uh, you know, similar to planting the tree I had mentioned, the the best time is right now, today, because, you know, you might get to 70 and start to think about it, but it might be too late to fully put into place the vision that you have for your legacy, or God forbid you don't make it, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, as well. So, I love this quote. I think this was chapter four or five of the book, but it it was kind of on the the front chapter page. And I thought it'd be a good place to start as we wrap up uh, our four-week session. So what you do is your history, and what you set in motion is your legacy. And were folks here Sunday for Sam's sermon this past Sunday? So he talked about things that he still remembers from his mom and the wisdom that that she had instilled. And I'm sure we could all sit here and share stories of of things mom or dad or uh, aunt or uncle or somebody who isn't here, friend, family, it doesn't necessarily have to be family member. But 
wisdom that they had instilled and imparted into us that reverberates through time. And I think that's what it's saying here is, you know, you're setting that in motion, whereas history is, hey, what we did, you read about it. But, but that legacy are those, those examples, those teachings that, that last hopefully throughout time. You're probably tired at this point of seeing the definition, so you'll all know this if you ever get on a spelling bee or ask for a definition. But again, I do think it's important because none of this is easy. It's something that will require discipline and habit and perseverance and, you know, you'll get home and uh, t tonight and wake up tomorrow in the world or already start trying to, to attack your plan. So hopefully everybody has already started to take steps, if you haven't already, prior to this workshop to enact and put into motion some of this plan. So we're on a quest, and this is your quest, which is a long or arduous search for something considered to be important or valuable. And again, arduous is uh, involving or requiring strenu strenuous effort, difficult, and tiring. So thinking about building, you know, I've, I've mentioned a few times, building that habit to work out. Not easy, not fun, but after six months, if you do it every day for a half hour, you still may not like it, but you kind of get in the habit of doing it. And then, of course, the building blocks. So we can't talk about legacy, and it's not that legacy is solely financial. And I think Sam did a great job of, of hitting that Sunday in, in the sermon. I mean, one piece is financial, which we'll talk about. But certainly it's skills, it's gifts, it's talents, it's all the other wisdom you can impart. But if you want to pass a financial legacy, it starts with a spending plan, with a budget. Because the only way you can amass stuff is you have to have some type of plan. And then, of course, that was week one. Week two, we talked about managing debt. So you've created the spending plan, budget plan. You've put a plan in place to, to tackle and manage debt. Now you've got to save. And again, the big savings goal is the emergency fund. So the emergency fund can't be the Visa, the MasterCard. Last week, or two weeks ago, we talked investments. So now you start to accumulate stuff. And after you spend a long time working your plan, now you can start to think uh, legacy. Because now you've, you've accumulated not just stuff, financial stuff, but hopefully some wisdom, some skills and gifts, abilities along the way. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Everybody heard of the parable of the talents? And I'm not going to read it because as I was kind of putting this together, I thought, well, we'd read some scripture, and then I got like halfway through it. I'm like, well, it turns into a Sunday service. But I would encourage everybody to read it. Uh, and I was listening to some commentary, and another way that this was used and talked about was called the tragedy of wasted opportunity, which I love that. And so when you start to read that, and, and just a quick refresher, there was a master, and he had some servants. And he gave one servant five talents uh, based off that servant's abilities. He gave another servant uh, two talents based off that servant's abilities. Uh, and then lastly, he gave another, the final servant, one talent and said, go and multiply my stuff. Now, it's not just talking about money, although I think money is one piece of God's gifts and abilities, it is being a steward of that aspect, that element. But of course it includes gifts and abilities and talents. 
one thing I think is important, and I hear a lot from folks, is, well, yes, but I don't have the same as them. You know, if only I had what they had or the income they had, I could do this. And if you read through this story, we don't know why in this particular parable the, the master gave different amounts other than they had different abilities. It doesn't define what abilities. And again, one element, let me be very clear, I think one element of this is finance. It, it, it's much bigger than finance, this particular parable. But I think that's important because everybody in this room was given different circumstances. Some of us have more privilege than others. You know, and, and I think, and I, I kind of hope Sam was here because if you think about his situation, born in Brazil, he was dealt a different hand than, was anyone here not born in the United States? Okay, Danny, I didn't even think about Danny here. Danny, where were you born? Trinidad, Tobago. So you think about it, it's not a, a bad hand, but a different hand than many of us. And, of course, birthplace is one. You know, what your parents taught you growing up, grandparents, aunts and uncles. How many of us learned about money growing up? A little bit, some. Uh, so we were all dealt different hands. We all have different skills and abilities. But in spite of that, and if you read through uh, what happened ultimately, he gave five to one, two to one, one to one, and he went off on a journey. And back then, you know, journeys could take years. So the return was unknown. And I think that's important, again, because I think you can look at it from a spiritual lens, but a financial lens. Spiritual lens of, of course, you know, we don't know the, the master's return, but a, a financial lens in the sense we don't know when we're going to go. So the best time to, to start all of this is right now today, but in spite of how much they were given, of course, what we know is the five, what happened with when the master returned? What did the five do? Anybody remember? Doubled it. Turned it to 10. What did the two do? Doubled it. Two to four. So they didn't go, they didn't go two to seven. They, they doubled it based off their abilities and their capabilities. What did the one do? Buried it. So he turned his one into one. Uh, and I think it's, it's, again, I think you look at it from the financial lens of in spite of our different circumstances. Some of us are in the room are fives. We are given different abilities, different capabilities, different privilege of birthplace and head starts in life and all of that. So whether you're a five, a three, or a two, or a one, or a ten, in spite of all of that, our responsibility is the same. Be a good steward of what we've been given. And again, I, finance is one element of this story, but that would, of course, also include abilities, gifts, resources, time. Uh, biblical stewardship as a definition. Utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. So again, whether we're a five, a two, or a one, our commandment is the same. Be a good steward of what we've been given. And, and I love to, and I, I emphasizing that point so much because so many times I hear folks, yes, but I, I was dealt the wrong hand. I have a hard time feeling sorry for anybody born in the United States. Again, we, we started week one, if you remember, incomes and global population. And, and so I don't think we have any excuses whether we're a seven, a five, a two, 
And I mentioned this, but if you read the story, the master's return is unknown. So they got to work because they didn't know. Again, you look back and take it in context. Journeys could take, you know, you go to Sunbury back 2,000 years ago. It might have taken you a year round trip on a donkey or six months or something. So we didn't know. You know. They didn't pull up the cell phone and say, hey, I'm on my way. They got to work. This is what I love about this so much, because in spite of, of whether we were given a five, a two, a one, a ten, a seven, is if you read towards the tail end of the passage, the reward's the same. For the person that turned five into ten and two into two, and this is right from uh, the text. So the reward of good stewardship is the same. Again, it wasn't expected the five grew to twelve. The five just doubled. The two doubled. The one hid. The two wasn't expected to have the same outcome as what the five had. But the reward was the same. And it says, again, right from the text, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So I think that's a good starting point as, as we kind of wrap up and think about legacy and estate planning because it doesn't matter where we started, where we are today, this is not optional. This is a commandment uh, to be good biblical stewards of the peace of God's kingdom he's entrusted to us. So we think about legacy, and I'm going to tell a quick story. This has been a little over 20 years ago. My mom... Uh, she would have been 45 at the time, so it had been 21, 22 years ago. Uh, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and it was adenoid cystic cancer. Probably nobody in the room has heard of it. It was very rare at the time. Uh, I think she was like the sixth or seventh person known to be documented with this type of cancer. But the way the doctor explained it to her, and I'm like 16 at this time, uh, that this will kill her. Slow growing, but will kill her. And six years ago, she's been gone six years. But, but I share that story because the time is unknown. You know, we're not guaranteed 70 or 80 as we think of. It'd be nice. We might get there. But I think one of the best ways that, that we can ensure that we live and have a fulfilling life is remember we're going to die. Nobody's going to get out of here alive. And again, it's unknown. So as we think about legacy, and I think Sam mentioned a very similar quote, but this is from Andrew Carnegie. Uh, shirts, and has anybody heard this quote before? Shirt, shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves of three generations. It's an old Irish quote, so it, it, we don't talk that way anymore, but, but has anybody heard that before? Does anybody want to venture to, to guess like what it means? So remember when Sam had talked about you have a business owner by the second generation, that business owner, so he handed it business owner to his son, that son handed it to his son or daughter, and the business is gone. So, so the whole idea behind this quote from Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, again, this was like 1905, I think, when he made this, was that you have one generation, they work really hard, and they put in all the hard work, and, and they kind of roll up the sleeves, and the, the blood, the sweat, and the tears to build something up, 
And by the third generation, they're back to doing the same thing because they've lost everything in terms of legacy. And the number of times that I, I mean, I don't need data. I don't need to look that up because, unfortunately, I experience that all the time. You see grandma and grandpa really work hard and save and accumulate sacrifice, and it goes to the kids, and then it becomes less. And you think, well, man, it should become more because it was this, and, and you had 20 years to do something with it. And then by the time it's the kids, it's almost gone at that point. So why do we not talk? And let's start there on the left-hand side. And just some of the conversations about money. Now, you might not have kids. And you might not have parents you're close to. But you you insert a neighbor, someone at church, some of these conversations that you can have. So so we can be uh, mentors in many capacities, one of which is family. But uh, we don't talk on the left-hand side to the kids about money. And you can see some of the reasons. They'll discuss it in the wrong company. You know, they'll bring up money with friends of ours. Or uh, if they know how much we have, you know, maybe they won't work hard. Or, you know, for some of us, maybe if it's they know how much we have, they'll work harder. because They don't want to be in the same position as mom and dad. Uh, they'll worry, you know, if we're in a bad place. And, and you can see on and on. Talk with our spouses. I know not everybody here is, is married, but girlfriend, fiance, or you know, even if you're single, close friend, insert. We don't talk about it because it causes stress or to lead to fights or they don't know anything about it. And again, you can see on and on. And last, we don't talk with our parents. And many of us are different stages of life. So for some of us, it's, hey, mom and dad are still around, but maybe they've got 10 or less years to go. These are real important conversations at that point in time. Uh, they never discuss money. They'll worry about our situation. But does avoiding this, and let me ask a question, does avoiding these conversations make the situation ever better or worse? So we've got to have hard conversations, right? And, and they're not always hard, but they're important conversations. Uh, this I just wanted to insert, and again, a quote there at the top you've probably picked up by now. I really like quotes. This was Abraham Lincoln. I teach the children so it will not be necessary to teach the adults. How true is that, that if we started with our kiddos, and again, you may not have kids, maybe you have grandkids, maybe it's a neighbor kid, but, but different ways about money and how to value money and work hard, how much better off would society be, let alone our own families? And we can get this slide deck out if folks would like to see this. Uh, I know there's a lot going on, but I'll just read you know a couple of different ideas. So how to get money. You got someone in preschool. It's that upper left part of that graph. Uh, bring your child to work to teach them how to earn money. You know, show them the other day. I mean, I always joke with my daughter. We've got this fake artificial tree in our living room. I'm like, hey, look at that tree. And, you know, she falls, she's five and a half. She falls for it every time this time. Uh, or right now, but I say, look, do you see that money growing from a tree? She kind of looks around, and, and so the idea is teach them how you get money for the kiddos. Or if you've got a high school kid, I am amazed at how many 15, 16-year-olds today don't work. I don't know what's going on again. I don't have a 15, 16-year-old, so, so maybe there's something, but 
I know when I uh, turned 15, which was when you could get a work permit in West Virginia where I grew up, first job was Wendy's. I was so eager to get a job so I could have a vehicle. But it's pretty rare to see, you know, and there's some numbers out there that for whatever reason, 15, 16, 17, 18, they're not working. The only thing I can suspect, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, because, you know, you still need money. So you've got to get it from somewhere. So you got a high schooler, part-time jobs to provide income, after-school jobs. Now, I'm sure many of us in the room, if you're 30 or more, you'd come home from school, you'd go to work for a couple hours, you'd come home, you'd do your homework, you'd go to bed, you'd wake up, you'd do the same thing. That's how you learn about hard work. Um, we'll do one more, maybe. Actually, I'll do that bottom right one, because this is one I actually really enjoy to do. Um, so high schooler, how to save and invest. Uh, wealth management is about uh, more than just returns. Involve them in the planning meetings. So we have a couple of our clients who will bring kids or grandkids into the conversations. We're talking anything too personal. You know, that we'll have the kid or grandkids step out, but it gives them an idea of, hey, your money is a process. It's, there's a plan to how you do all these things. So just get them exposed to the different areas. So let's talk estate planning. On your table, you will see uh, an estate planning organizer. I'm not going to go through all this, but I would say that if, if folks just filled this piece out, they've got a better estate plan than 90% of the population. And this is not a legal document by any means, but if you remember from a Sunday's sermon, Sam had mentioned Laura's parents, so his in-laws have like an envelope. And I imagine something like this is in the envelope. There's nothing earth-shattering here. There's nothing you couldn't put on a piece of notebook paper yourself. Uh, but this right here, again, you're just going to list that. You guys need more, Brenda? Or? I, yeah, I think uh, we're <laughs> we've got an. Un, you need a couple more back here. You guys, good here and here. Just a couple. Just get this. Okay, perfect. So again, this isn't a legal document. It's not a will, not a power of attorney, which we'll talk about, but it just kind of is a record, a category, uh, an organization of what you have, where it is, who you work with. Does mom have credit cards? Dad have credit cards? You fill it out, take some time, you throw it in a safe, and you're ahead of about 90% of the population in terms of estate planning. So let's talk about uh, with estate planning. And again, I always think it's important to focus on the why. So why do folks do it? Or why should folks consider it? Well, one way or one reason why is it's how you tra transfer assets. So if you have real estate, if you have bank accounts, investment accounts, uh, you, you have any asset that, that requires some type of transference, uh, that's pretty important to do estate planning with. Or else you'll end up, we'll talk a little bit about probate. Incapacity. I actually just today uh, am running into this situation with a client. It's been ongoing for a while, but it's been a nightmare for everybody involved. And it, I feel terrible for, for the client, the couple, but it, it was easily avoidable because husband, wife, joint account, and many things are jointly owned, condo, and just like all of us that are married, you jointly own everything. Uh, the wife's incapacitated, so mentally she cannot make decisions. Uh, they do have power of attorneys. 
Good news, which again, I'll talk about what a power of attorney is. Unfortunately, her power of attorney was last updated in 1991. And it reads that, that only, uh, the power of attorney can only act on behaviors that, that continue prior behaviors from that individual. I'm not an attorney, so I've been with our attorneys half the day uh, on the call. But the way it was actually written was you have to be incapacitated to, to act and use the power of attorney. And then you can, as the agent, uh, the individual husband acting on behalf of the wife, they can only replicate similar behavior patterns that the individual has shown. So if they were gifting 10000 a year to the church, we can continue to do that for the power of attorney. And now they have a joint account and a condo jointly owned that, we're trying to figure out how we get this out, and it's Medicaid. You know, I won't get into the weeds, but we're trying to figure out how we get them ready for Medicaid planning. So incapacity is, is you know, cognitive decline, basically, when, when you're not able physically or mentally to make decisions for yourself. So it could be a physical disability or limitation or a cognitive limitation, or, of course, it could be both of that. Uh, estate planning guardians for minors or dependents. So we get two girls, five and an almost one-year-old. We put together a trust, mainly just so it controls. I, I No plans to go anywhere for their 18, but just in case we did, there's plans in place for them so that they don't get all the money at 18. I don't know about you all, but at 18, if I had a windfall of cash, you know, how good of decisions will most folks make with that? So, so it gives you the ability to make Decisions for minors or dependents. And I think I might mention here, but dependent would also fall into developmentally disabled, which you don't run into a lot, but like special needs planning. So when you need it, you really need it. It's an important piece. But I realize that, that you know, a population of 100, probably only five or six might need special needs planning. But that would be like an adult child who you thought might, hey, they, they might have to live with us forever or somebody forever. You do estate planning. Charitable intent. So Sam is going to uh, talk at some point about the, the new youth center. Uh, but, but if charitable intent is a goal of yours, there's not only a, a lot of reasons from an estate standpoint to take care of that, but we've got Jared in the room. He can talk all about all the tax benefits of charitable gifts and structuring things different ways. Uh, tax planning we talked about. And I think this is the last one, uh, business succession planning. So if you have known a business, and again, it's a smaller population, but that business is an entity. What happens to the business when you die or when one of the owners dies? You have this legal entity you have to do something with. Uh, a couple of facts that I think I already uh, clicked through a few of them. No surprise here, I'm sure, for many of you, given our last couple of weeks of sessions, but 67% of Americans have done zero estate planning. They have no will, no power of attorney, none of the basic stuff. You know, let, I mean, and I'll talk about, there's some easy stuff you can do without an attorney, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute, but two-thirds have done no estate planning. Uh, Again, a lot of things, what we'll hear is, well, it's just for wealthy people. No. If you have stuff, you need some type of estate plan. Because if you don't have a plan, what's your plan? Does anybody know in the state of Ohio? You, if you die without no plan, who decides what happens to your stuff? 
state. You die in teste. Now, again, it might eventually get where you had intended it, but it might not in doing that. So if you don't have a plan, and you've heard this before, you don't have a plan, you have a plan. It's Columbus. Probate. Let me talk for a second about probate. Who has experienced probate with a loved one, friend, family member? So just one, two. That's kind of surprising. So when you look at probate, and what probate ultimately is, is if you die uh, and, and your assets, and I'll talk about a will, but if, if anything that goes into your will or that doesn't have a designation or if you don't have a will becomes part of probate. So we got a probate court right downtown Delaware, and there's, I think, uh, Judge Himanowski, and I think he's got a couple of magistrates that all day long, all they handle is pretty much probate. So anything that you die uh, that, that doesn't have a beneficiary designation, which, again, I'll talk about a transfer on death, a payable on death, a lot of folks think a will avoids probate. A will is important, but a will does not avoid probate. Anything that goes into your will, and, and I hear it all the time, folks say, well, I got a will, it takes care that's great. A will creates a probate estate. So a couple of problems with probate. One, it's lengthy. I don't think I put that up here, but the average probate in Ohio is 6 to 24 months, start to finish. Uh, the average cost, which is mind-blowing when you think about it, between you know all the court costs, the legal fees, everybody that gets a piece of that along the way is 3 to 8% of the assets that transfer through probate. If you think about that, if you transfer a million dollars through probate of stuff, again, land, investment, whatever, the average cost will be 3 to 8%, 30 to $80,000 to send that through probate. And not to mention, uh, it's something where, where somebody has to, to commit time to it. So, so it's a long process, 6 to 12 months, but then you've got someone, who, survivor's time tied up, and, well, they've got to go to the court. They've got to go get a notary. They've got to go. So it's, it's just an absolute mess uh, if we have to go through it. So, again, that's another reason we uh, do estate planning. Oh, and I did put that up there. Now, again, it's not just a problem of the wealthy. In fact, the wealthy have quite the problem with estate planning. So some of these you've probably heard, these are all folks who died without an estate plan. They had no named beneficiaries. So some more recent, I think they go in order of passing. I think Prince is, yeah, that would make sense. So Prince, I think four, five, six years ago when he had passed away, $300 million estate, no named beneficiaries. And again, if you assume a 1% fee, on $300 million, it's millions of dollars that, that is a loss of value to go to somebody. Uh, all the way to the far left, and we've got, again, quite an age group here, Howard Hughes, I'm, I'm gu guessing older folks know him, younger folks, no idea, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, I heard the name, had to do a little bit of research. He was basically the wealthiest person on the planet from like 1950s to 1970s oil money. So he had inherited, so, so talking about the five, the two, and the one, the talents, he was like a 27 in my book because I think his dad left him a million bucks in 1905 or something I had read. But when he passed away, he had 3.8 billion 
with no name beneficiaries, no estate plan. All right, so let's talk uh, about account registration and some of these simple things that we can do because we will need the help of an attorney, but there are some simple things you can do without the help of an attorney. So first piece I'll talk about, account registration. And I would encourage everybody, any account you have, check out to see how it is registered. Is it registered just in my name? Am I the sole owner? Is it joint owner? Are there multiple, you know, three owners, four owners, five owners on the account? So look at things like your investment accounts, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts, insurance policy, pension, any property. You have property, you can go right out to the auditor site. Delaware, if you own Delaware County and every auditor, county auditor is similar, you can see how your deed is set up for your property. And of course, what you start to think, well, if you're married and your estate planning goals are, hey, if something happens to me, it goes to my spouse or vice versa, probably be good at step one. Get that stuff jointly owned if you can. Because that doesn't go through probate with a joint right of survivorship. So if I die on a joint bank account I have with my wife, she shows up, gives him a death certificate, says, yep, he's gone, and more or less they take my name off. There's no probate, no court, no estate needed at that point. Um, so again, check your registration of accounts. of Now, like retirement accounts, you can only own one owner on a retirement account. IRAs, 401ks, 457s. If it's a retirement account or a pension plan, it's one owner. But of course, then you put, if your goal is, hey, it goes to my spouse, again, not everyone's married, but if it is your spouse, then you put primary beneficiary. So, so what a beneficiary is, and I'm sure there is some, you know, Jared might know this, but I'd love to ask an attorney, because you'll hear the, these words used interchangeably. I'm sure there is some technical legal difference. I don't, my curiosity wants to know, but it doesn't matter for estate planning. So when you hear beneficiary, uh, P-O-D, P is in Paul, payable on death. T-O-D, T uh, is in Tom, transfer on death. They all do the same thing. Beneficiaries are just used for retirement accounts. TODs, PODs are used for like real estate and non-retirement accounts. So what a beneficiary designation is, and I think the next slide tells a little bit about it. So, well, in that first bullet point I had mentioned, if you designate a beneficiary or transfer on death payable on death, that account will not be controlled by your will, so it won't go into the will. These are called uh, bypass accounts. So they're gonna bypass the will, which means they're going to avoid probate. Or if you happen to have a trust, it'll avoid the trust. What, what if your beneficiary is a trust? So you can name a trust as beneficiary. We're getting a little bit complex. Uh, your stuff would go into the trust and then whatever the trust reads would govern the assets at that point. But it would still accomplish the goal of probate avoidance by doing that. PODs typically are used on like saving, checking, like deposit type accounts, cash type accounts, and then non-retirement accounts that hold securities, stock, mutual funds, bonds tend to use, at least everyone I've seen, TODs. But the end goal would be the same. But yeah, if you happen to have something that did have a POD uh, and it did have securities, it, it might force a liquidation or something like that. One of the nice things about all of this is it, it saves time and cost 
So it's a, if it's a beneficiary designation, a transfer on death, payable on death, with most financial institutions, insurance companies, uh, it, it's three, four, five, six business days, and the money's transferred, and that's it. No attorney is needed. No court is needed. It doesn't become part of probate. It is a very quick, efficient process to do that. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of things you can think about, like your bank accounts. Everybody here should have a POD on their bank account. Checking, savings, have it on every account. You walk into the bank, you say, hey, here's what I want to do. They'll usually need legal name, date of birth, social, maybe address or phone number. But generally, it's just legal name, date of birth, social. You add a POD on your bank accounts, checking, saving. You know, if you have five checkings, add, you have to add on each checking account. Uh, that would keep your bank accounts out of probate by doing that. So bank accounts, car. Car is an asset. Uh, coincidentally, just bought a car a couple of days ago myself. Uh, wanted to title it jointly. My wife didn't happen to be at the dealership. It's going to be this big pain. you got to drive down to the dealership. To so I'm like, well, just title it my name, but now we're going to have to take it to BMV and do some estate planning. I, again, I don't plan to die in the useful life of that vehicle, but just in case. So the tricky thing about cars, probably the car you're driving today for most of us, is not the car you're going to be driving when you pass away. So, so it's something you're planning. you got to stay on top of it. But you go to BMV if it's titled jointly. Sometimes you, car passes directly. I think Ohio now allows, and Jared, you might know this, two cars to pass. Okay, so two you can pass in Ohio. What I would say is just go ahead and put beneficiaries anyway on the account just in case. Uh, Ohio, you can now your real estate. So for those of you who own homes, again, if, if you're jointly owning a home or as an individual, if you're jointly owning, it's probably husband, wife. Uh, if you're an individual, of course, just be you. But if you own real estate, you can now put a beneficiary designation on your deed. That is one you can do on your own. I always recommend folks, it's probably the best two or 300 bucks you'd pay an attorney as part of just overall estate planning for them to handle it. Because you have to file it, I think, through the court. And there's a couple of more steps to that. So, again, you used to, with real estate, need a trust. Now you don't need a trust anymore to keep your real estate, whether that's a house or a piece of land or both, uh, out of the probate court. Uh, retirement accounts. So it was on a prior page. And here we go. Life insurance policies. I'll throw all this together. Life insurance policies, annuities, retirement accounts, other investment banking accounts. Um, you have a joint brokerage account. Again, two spouses, for example. Sometimes the one, it goes the other. Sometimes the both of you have a couple of, of transfer on death beneficiaries on that account. And that was a great point in the back because the other benefit of doing that way and avoiding probate is let's say you have 100 shares of Apple. Make it easy on me. You have two kids. Uh, if you have a transfer on death beneficiary, each kid will get 50 shares, half, assuming that's the goal, half to each. Because it doesn't have to be, but generally it is. Uh, they get their 50 shares, and now each child gets to make their decision with what to do with the shares. So they can keep the shares. They can say, hey, Mom and Dad, this is a good investment. Let's keep them. Or they can liquidate them and buy a you know, a Corvette or something. But it, it allows them to make that decision as opposed to if it kicks into probate, most attorneys will just say, hey, we've got a probate account set up at the bank. Liquidate that stuff. Give it a check, and they'll throw it, you know, aggregate it. So it becomes inefficient from both a cost and a potential tax standpoint as well, especially when it's good assets. Again, stuff that the kids would, or grandkids, or niece or nephew would want to keep if given the, the choice. 
life insurance, we see this all the time. Somebody bought a life insurance policy 25 years ago. They haven't updated beneficiaries. They pull it out. I, I mean, some of the horror stories, and I'm sure some of you have heard it, we've seen ex-wives of 15 years on these things. You might say, well, what would happen? You know, that, that's who it's going to go to. You know, that's who, who's, I mean, it might end up in court. The, the current wife might contest it, and they might have some legal validity to that, but it's going to be a nightmare. So it's, it's as simple as just checking insurance policies, annuities, pensions, all these different things that we have, who the beneficiaries are. All right, let's talk about legal documents. So everything I just mentioned, other than maybe the deed, uh, you can do pretty much on your own and at very little cost. You go put it on your bank account at you know, PNC, they're going to charge you zero other than your time to do that. So you can do it at very little cost without the help of an attorney with everything other than maybe the deed. These are things obviously need the help of an attorney, and I am not an attorney. So I, I know enough about this to speak about it, but I, I'm not the, the person. Uh, so what is a will? And I'll just read it up there, and everybody can see it. So a legal document that governs the distribution of assets in your name, and it determines who gets what when you die. So everybody should have a will. And I think one of the things that, that I've noticed about estate planning, if you think about, and I wish maybe I had a slide, but things that are important and urgent, things that are not important and not urgent, and I hopefully I can get this right, but things that are important but not urgent, and urgent but not important. Does the, the four combinations, that probably is like confusing as mud, right? But when you think about a state of planning, it's often one that falls into the quadrant that we all know it's important, but we never feel like it's urgent. So probably many of you in this room, if you don't yet have an estate plan, probably when you first got married, 25, and maybe you're 65 now, you probably started thinking, yeah, we should probably do that. And then life got in the way. And then life got in the way, and life got in the way, and that turned into 40 years later. So I think everybody thinks it's important, but it's one of those things nobody's ever holding a fire to your butt to say, hey, you need to get this done, and it's easy to forgo it until it's too late. So everybody should have a will. Again, if you're 20 years of age in the room and you have stuff, it's still an important piece. Or if you're 80 years of age or 90 or anywhere in between, uh, think about a will, and I often talk with folks, it's kind of like a catch basin. Because ideally, nothing finds its way into your will. That's my view on estate planning, because we, we've done direct transfer of everything, either via trust or, which I, I think I talked briefly about trust here in a moment, but either via trust or beneficiary designation, transfer on death payable on death. Because remember, anything with beneficiary designation, TOD, POD, avoids your will. But a will is still important because inevitably what happens, not with all of us, but with some of us, uh, we forget to designate a certain account. Or we've changed banks and we said, hey, I set that all up, and we forget when we change from PNC to Richwood to reestablish payable on death. So what a will does is anything that doesn't have a designation, a direct transfer, it governs the distribution of that stuff. But only the stuff that finds its way down there. So again, keep in mind, stuff only finds its way there if you haven't named a beneficiary, TOD, POD, or it's not part of a trust. 
So it's still a very important document, but my view on estate planning is if we don't have to go to probate, how nice would that be? Again, if you haven't experienced it, you probably will at some point. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's costly. It's timely. Uh, this is a way to, to completely avoid it. So again, it's important, but it's something ideally we don't want to ever have to use. But it governs the distribution of anything we forgot about. Some other important legal documents, and, and I, these are kind of all part of a basic estate planning set. So when you go meet with an estate planning attorney, uh, they, they'll usually all come bundled. You'll get a will, you'll get these power of attorneys, you'll get the living will all at once. But just to talk about what they do, so a durable power of attorney, durable just means it survives in capacity. So again, if, if I'm uh, Alzheimer's, I'm still alive, I'm here, but, but durable means it will survive in capacity so my wife could still act on my behalf even though I'm incapacitated, physical or uh, cognitive in, or mental. Uh, usually part of a durable power of attorney is, and, and some attorneys will do it, a durable power of attorney and a financial power of attorney separately. Some do financial as part of a durable. But what a power of attorney or durable power of attorney is basically it allows somebody or somebodies to act as my agent or on my behalf if I can't do it, if I don't want to do it on everything other than basically health care. So, so it's a very powerful designation because the person you name, of course, has to, is supposed to act in your best interest. But let's say I name a son that I don't have, but theoretically a son as power of attorney, and it's on file with the local bank. Uh, my son can go liquidate my entire account, sign as power of attorney, my name, comma, POA. And again, could I legally pursue it? Sure, because I could say, well, you're a fiduciary. You didn't do what, but who wants to deal with that? So it's a very powerful designation because somebody gets to act as you in all matters basically other than health care, which we'll talk about in a second. So again, if you're married, most folks will name a spouse. If you have your children, adult age children that you trust, you know, most folks will name the most responsible uh, of the kids. You can name multiples, so it's not something that has to be one person. It can be multiples. You can put a successor in there, so you can do many different layers with it. But if you imagine, you know, I have a Honda pension, and uh, mentally, you know, I'm just confused, fuzzy. I can't handle it anymore. If I don't have a power of attorney, and my wife calls and says, hey, Honda, Mercer, which is not Mercer anymore. I can't remember what company. Whoever does Honda pension nowadays. Um, hey, my husband has a pension with you all, and I, I had some questions. We wanted to, to change X, Y, Z about the pension or change our tax withholding or the bank. If she doesn't have power of attorney, Honda cannot talk with me. And I know it sounds silly, you know, when you hear that, but, but if you have a financial account, a utility, something that's just in your name, now some firms you'll get away with it because they have very loose screening, if you will, where, where you'll call up the utility and technically if it's in just my name, they're not supposed to talk with anybody other than me about my account unless they have a power of attorney on file and they're talking with the power of attorney. So it's a very powerful but important designation. Healthcare power of attorney is exactly what I just said, but for healthcare decisions. 
If I'm down at the hospital, uh, I'm in bad shape, and my wife doesn't think I'm getting good care. Uh, if she has a health care power of attorney on file with the hospital, many doctor's offices, now you keep it on file. So if you already have one, you probably already have it on file with your office. But if she doesn't think I'm getting good care, if the health care power of attorney is on file, then she can request a doctor change or a location change or a prescription change on my behalf. Now, again, I've heard differing stories. Some hospitals, very loose and lax. Well, well my dad spent towards the end of last year. Uh, I'm power of attorney for my dad. I'm one of four boys. He was in a hospital in West Virginia with COVID for about 10 days. I, I don't know what's going on in West Virginia. They dealt with my cousin. Let, you know, her change prescriptions and request. I mean, all, you know, legal nightmare waiting to happen in my opinion. But she's not power of attorney, but but I'm thankful. They, they did deal with her. It saved me a lot of trips to West Virginia to, to talk with folks. Uh, but that's what a healthcare power of attorney does. So it's, it's the same thing as a durable power of attorney, but specifically for healthcare, changing doctors or drugs or prescriptions or facilities. So again, powerful, but important. You know, you don't want to name your ir most irresponsible family member as your power of attorney. You know, this is something to, to take very seriously. Uh, lastly, living will. And a, a living will is... A document that, that, and Sam mentioned this, I think, Sunday, uh, it gives your end-of-life instructions. So if I'm on life support, uh, you know, that's the most extreme example, but if, if my body can't take care of itself, keep itself afloat, what do I want to happen? And some folks will say, hey, try everything at any expense to keep me alive. Machinery costs no issue. And other folks will say, you know what, if I can't myself, without the help of, of machinery or expensive equipment and drugs, you know, pull the plug. And I think the power in doing this, because I, I think Sam, of course, mentioned it and gave a story. The power in doing this, if you imagine the situation, if you've ever been unfortunate enough to be in that situation, and I have not, but we've had a lot of clients who have. You know, we're, again, I'm going to use a spouse because that's the, the, but but anybody, a loved one that's hooked up to a machine and they don't have a living will. So their wishes have not been put in writing in advance. And now the family's having to make that decision at a time when they just want to grieve. So, so to me, it's a compassionate thing that we do for our loved ones more than anything. I mean, it's a powerful legal tool. But it, it takes the onus, the decision-making, off of those folks at a time when they're probably in no emotional state or capacity to do so. And again, an attorney can help you put. And of course, with something like that, there's no right or wrong answer. Some of you in the room might say, hey, try anything at any expense. Keep me alive. And others might say, you know what? If I can't stay afloat myself, go ahead and that's it. But it's putting that in writing so that a loved one, I mean, I, to me, it's just such a selfish thing to make a loved one make that decision. And I can't imagine if you've had to do that, I'm sorry. But, but what a tough thing that would be to say, you know what, mom would have wanted to pull the plug, but mom didn't put that in writing. Now I have to sign off on that. Or grandma or aunt or uncle or whoever. The final piece, which isn't mentioned up here, I'll talk about is a funeral planning. And it's another piece that I think you do 
you know, so we got younger folks here like funeral planning. Uh, so that's where this is a, a complex topic. Um, think about funeral planning in, in two ways, pre-plan versus pre-pay. I, I'm happy to talk about pre-pay. To me, that's le- much less important than pre-plan. Now, it's probably, you know, Carter, how old are you? 21, I probably wouldn't walk into Snyder Funeral Homes as Carter and say, hey, I'm here to pre-plan my funeral. Maybe a little bit young and early for something like that. But, you know, if you're 50 plus, probably not a bad idea. And you can pre-plan a funeral with pretty much any nursing home for free. Now, you might say, why would they do it for free? They want your business when you do die because you're going to die at some point. So, you know, Snyder Funeral Homes, a big one in town. I know they'll take you in. They'll pre-plan it. Again, why are we doing this? If you've ever had to put a funeral, so my mom six years ago, we had to scramble to put that together. We kind of knew it was going to happen, but it wasn't something, you know, you, you hate to think about it. And, you know, the day or two leading up to the funeral, at the time we just want to grieve and relax and share memories and stories. We're figuring out, you know, what color this and what casket that. So you can pre-plan, again, at zero cost, and with most funeral homes, zero commitment. Now, if you want to look at pre-paying, I mean, they'll talk to you about that. For sure, when you go into pre-plan, they'll talk to you about pre-paying. But I'm much more a proponent of uh, at least pre-planning. So we've talked about the basic estate planning, uh, which is, again, a lot of those things you can do yourself with very little time, very little cost. Then we move to kind of 101 of wills and power of attorneys and healthcare power of attorneys and durable power of attorneys and living wills and, and pre-planning of funerals. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on trust because it's a very complex. I mean, there are so many different types of trusts where, you know, I mean, I certainly don't know every type of trust. But where you might consider a trust. Because I, I think for most people, you can accomplish all of your state planning goals without a trust. So I think it's one where we're conditioned, we're coached, well, we need a trust. Well, maybe, maybe not. But you can definitely, for, again, 99% of people, accomplish all of your goals with your legacy, with estate planning, without a trust. So you look at what a trust is. It's a legal arrangement in which an individual gives control of property to a person or institution for the benefit of beneficiaries. Doesn't tell us much, right? So think about a trust as a big bucket. Uh, you have a big bucket, and this bucket has a set of rules tied to it. And I'm going to simplify this, but it has a set of rules. Uh, you assign trustees to oversee this bucket. And it could be one trustee or multiple trustees. It could be you. It could be kids. Uh, the idea is that whatever you put in that bucket is governed by those rules. So probate, or it does avoid probate. That's one nice thing about a trust. But again, we can do that without uh, trusts. What are some other things that, that you should look for with a trust? And I think there's a couple of big things. So I mentioned this earlier, but if you have special needs children or grandchildren, and again, I know this is a smaller population where this would apply to, but a lot of these folks who for their life might need care, government assistance. If you don't do special needs trust planning and all of a sudden they come into a bunch of money, what happens to the government benefits? They're gone because the government says, hey, you just inherited a bunch of money. So this is a tool which allows it to provide support and care for those special needs children 
or adult children, um, but not lose some of those eligibility for benefits. Restrict inheritance. So this was kind of my reasoning. Is, you know, at 18, I didn't want, if God forbid me and my wife are gone, our girls getting everything we have at 18. So it allows you to, I, I kind of, this is a, one of the phrases I use, but a trust allows you to control the money from the grave. Now, some of you might not care at all. And again, it's not a right or wrong thing. I've got one of my, my larger clients I work with up in Radnor. And every time I talk to him about estate planning, he's like, why do I care? I'm dead. So I get it. You know, I'm not here to tell you it should be important to you. I'm giving you reasons why you might want to make it important. Um, but for some folks, you know, you might say, hey, if this child's very responsible. If they got $300,000, they would take really good care of it regardless of age. They can have the gift outright. And then maybe you have a child or grandchild where you say, you know what, if they got $300,000, it would be gone in a year or two. Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. That's where you might consider a trust is because it allows you to restrict where you could say, hey, at 40, you get half. And it's 60, you get the other half or something. Because basically, if it's legal, you can put it into a trust in terms of restricting uh, inheritance. And then I won't spend a whole lot of time, but there are potentially trusts where you can use for tax benefits. Let's move on to insurance. And everybody, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because uh, folks' eyes start to glaze over when you talk insurance. But on your, your table, you should see a flyer, uh, term versus perm. And, and the book talks about the importance of insurance. And I'll just talk about it very uh, high level. So when you think about the whole idea behind insurance, and there's a lot of ways that, that you can kind of mitigate or avoid or reduce risk. So if you are afraid of, of dying via bungee, jump, bungee jumping, don't take the risk, right? But if your fear is that you're going to get into a car accident and have a fatal car accident, is that something that we can probably avoid? We can maybe reduce uh, our risk by putting on a seatbelt, doing regular maintenance on our vehicle, checking our tire pressure, rotating, all those things. But you can never fully eliminate that type of risk. So when you think about insurance, what you should look to insure, looking on the right-hand side, is things that would be catastrophic if they happen to you, but they're very low probability events. So if you think about and you know, getting close to 40, uh, I think we've probably, from, from my high school class, and I think about this often, I think probably about a half a dozen of the kids I graduated high school with have died. See them at the risk of premature death. It's a very low probability thing. But it does happen, right? And I'm sure we all know somebody who died at, in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, way, way too young. The question becomes, are we confident enough to know that won't be us? And of course, if you say yes to that, you're way too confident because you have no control over that. So what you want to ensure are catastrophic things that if they happen to you, but low probability events. And they have to be low probability or else an insurance company wouldn't insure it. You know, if it was something that was very likely to happen, insurance company wouldn't give you insurance for it because they'd be bankrupt because they'd be paying out to everybody, claims. 
So you look at some different things. We'll start on the right-hand side. Uh, if you're younger in the room, term insurance. So term insurance is very cheap. Think term you're renting insurance. So in my case, again, I'll use my family as an example. My wife stays at home. I'm the sole breadwinner. If I died, she'd be in some trouble if we didn't have some insurance. So you sell the house, downsize, figure out how, well, she'd have to go back to work. Now we got daycare expenses for two kids. Uh, so if you're young, typically term is, and it's renting insurance, so it's very cheap, which it talks about in that slide. So the idea is you want to check the box of protection, but no plans to use it or make a claim. But it checks that box. If you're older in the room, you start to think about permanent insurance, which, again, I'm not getting the weeds. Uh, the flyer talks a little bit about that, but you use that for different reasons. So if you're 70, I'll use that as an example, and you've already done all your accumulation, and husband and wife are both retired, do we really need insurance? You know, let's say you're 70 and you've got $5,000 a month of income you live comfortably off of with a half million dollar investment portfolio. Do you need insurance? And no debt. Do you need insurance? No. We, I think we're all conditioned because all the advertisements to think, well, yeah, we need something. And, and when I ask, well, why do you need it? Well, you've got to pay for the funeral. Yes, life insurance. This is all insurances, but specifically life insurance with this conversation. So, yeah, it, it, to be clear, do you need life insurance? That's a good, because some of you are parents, well, we need homeowners or autos. So let me be very clear, life insurance. Um, you know, I would say, no, you don't need in that 70-year-old example. You need to pay for a funeral. You've probably got 25 or 30 grand in the bank if that's who you are. Uh, if you've got your retirement accounts, everything set up to transfer on death, beneficiary designation, payable on death, that money very quickly gets to, you know, which more than enough in time to pay for a funeral. Doesn't mean you wouldn't consider insurance, but it's for different reasons. It's not for protection because if husband-wife goes in that case, the surviving spouse should be A-OK. -okay. But in my case, again, I go in accumulation phase of life, and wife starts to, without insurance, life insurance to be particular, uh, she starts to make some decisions at that point. So again, term is you're renting insurance for a period of time. Very cheap. And the reason it's so cheap is the insurance company knows very few people, you know, my age are going to die in the next 30 years. It'll happen, but it's a very low probability event. But it's catastrophic if I'm the one it happens to. Again, if you're older, permanent insurance. Um, and then on the left-hand side, and, and Chris, you can see, you know, risks you can afford or you can't afford on the right-hand side, those are where you look for insurance. So we talked life insurance, of course, if you own a home. You know, I don't care how wealthy you are, but I don't know many people wealthy enough that if you came home and your home was burned down, and let's say it's $300,000, $400,000, $600,000 home, where you'd say, oh, I can self-insure. You're allowed to self-insure. I think you have to have a certain net worth to do it in Ohio with your house. But how many would want to take on that risk as opposed to transfer? Because insurance is just transferring risk to somebody else. Uh, medical, you know, health insurance, big conversation. Obviously, disability, business, um, auto isn't up there. But, but well, auto is on the left-hand side. You have an old you know, car, it's worth $300. I would argue you probably still need some amount of protection 
uninsured motorist and, and you know, something where you at least want to have a conversation. Um, you know, I'm not going to say don't insure your pet. I know folks love their pets, but, but it's something where that hopefully through budgeting, we can budget. Now, I've clients that have like knee ACL work on doll, I mean, it, I'm not a big pet person, so I don't know a lot, but it sounds very expensive. So, so maybe you want pet insurance for those. Jewelry, uh, you know, again, a lot of times we waste money insuring a $1,000 necklace or two thousand, where it's just, well, if you lose it, just do you really need to replace it? If you need to replace it, can you just do it via cash flow? Because, of course, the, the insurance companies, I mean, when you think about any type of insurance, they only do this because this is a profitable with, with most lines of business. Now, again, it's an important piece, uh, but, but it's a piece where you don't want to overinsure. You don't have too much insurance. The idea behind like life insurance isn't to make somebody a multimillionaire. The idea is that, hey, if, if I pass, my wife's okay. You know, not that she doesn't have to work and, and she goes out and buys a $3 million. It's she's okay. Again, you all might have different goals, but, but keep in mind the odds that you collect are very small with insurance. So you see that on the, the table there. Um, charitable giving, and this is a piece, again, if you read through it was chapter four, I believe, of the book, see about you can give in life with charitable giving. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the church, but I don't know how many folks caught this in the book. I think Sam mentioned it on Sunday, but it, it definitely convicted me a little bit because there's a line in the book that says if everybody in this church, and I, I don't know if everybody does go to Delaware Christian Church, but I'm going to assume everybody does for example's sake, but if everybody at the church gave it the same level as me, would the church have to cut back on operations or stop some operations all together? And that to me was a pretty powerful statement out of the book. And Sam might share some of the, the data and statistics along the way as, as they uh, look at the youth center. So in life, in, in, this goes back to week one. Maybe in the book talks about you're not a giver today or you're not giving what you would want. Because I, I really do believe everybody wants to give, and the book talks about that. It's just we don't think either we can give because money's too tight or we're worried or we're nervous. Well, what if we do and then this happens? I believe everybody has an intent and a heart, or almost everybody, for it. Uh, but the book gives some ideas. How do we start to incorporate giving slowly into our, our budget and spending plan? So I think it recommends, like, start with 1%. So if you make $1,000 a month, give $10. I'll say to Delaware Christian Church, but... Any charity, of course, as part of the spending plan. And then, of course, you build up from there. Uh, this piece I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on because, again, it's applicable to a smaller population. But for those that uh, are either close to required minimum distributions, which looks like maybe only a couple in the room, um, just know there's a tool out there called Qualified Charitable Distribution. So maybe if you have mom or dad, they're uh, 72 or 70 and a half and older, depending on when, well, 72 and older today, I should say, uh, that there's a tool out there for required minimum distributions called a Qualified Charitable Distribution. 
If you want to talk more, I'll hang out. But I realize for 95% of people here, uh, if you are in that population, it's an amazing tool. But again, you, you have required distributions on your retirement account. You give to charity and you take a standard deduction. If you meet those three things, you should probably look at a qualified charitable distribution. And I just put highly appreciated stuff. Usually you see that as highly appreciated stock. So another idea for, for charitable giving, I'll use my Apple as an example. Um, if you own, well, let, let's use real estate. It's a little bit simpler to understand. But let's say I bought some land up in Radnor 25 years ago, and I own 100 acres of farmland. Uh, what did I pay 25 years ago in Radnor? for? <laughs> how much? Yeah, <laughs> very low uh, per acre um, basis. So let's say 500 bucks an acre 25 years ago. What's ground in Radnor worth today? Six, seven K for farmland, something like that. So if I still own it, and, and let's say, I'm going to make the math easy. Let's say 1000 bucks an acre is what I paid, and it's now worth 5000 So I have a $4,000 gain. If I go to sell that land, uh, for every one acre I sell, and I'm simplifying this, but I'm going to pay tax on $4,000 because I had a gain of 4000 I paid one, I got five. My gain was four, so I'm going to pay a capital gain tax. If, however, and I'm going to use the church, I give that land or part of that land to Delaware Christian Church or any charity, but I'll use DCC. Uh, the church receives it. I pay no tax because I'm making a gift. The church can now sell it and pay no tax because it's a qualified charity. So who loses in that example? The tax man. <laughs> Is anybody disappointed? The IRS gets less. No. And, and so whether it's qualified, appreciated land. So there was a church south of us, southern Delaware County. They were given land right off 23. This was exactly, I don't even need to know the person or who was involved. I guarantee you this was why. Because if that person sold the land, very valuable land, highly appreciated land, they would have wrote a, a several hundred thousand dollar in capital gain tax to Uncle Sam. They were charitable minded. They gave the, the land to the church. Church paid zero tax. The individual paid zero tax. Win-win for the church, the individual, and now there's a church on that side. So you just know if you have highly appreciated stuff, stock, bonds, mutual funds, real estate, I mean, it could be a coin collection, although there's more complexities to like collectibles with all this stuff. Um, so that's in life, some ideas for, for giving. Uh, in death. And again, I'm going to start to tie all this together. So I, I think it's important that we all face, I, I realize death can be uncomfortable, but I think it's something I just talk about so much. that So if folks get uncomfortable when I talk about it, like raise your hand. Or, or, but I talk about so much that, that I don't see any reason to avoid the conversation. Because, of course, none of us are, are going to avoid it. Um, and again, I think that's also a powerful way to make sure that, that we live, is realizing at some point that's going to stop ticking. And we'll do a, an exercise here in a second. But in death, uh, you can, of course, name, and a lot of foundations were started this way. You can name, again, I put church, 
could be any qualified charity as beneficiary, part of the will. Ideally, it's like a beneficiary, a TOD, POD, so it's a direct transfer, can be named in the will. Uh, you can put them as part of trust, life insurance. So you can name a church, a qualified charity, as a, a beneficiary as part of your stuff. And there's a lot of benefits to do that. So if you have an IRA, pre-tax IRA, 401k, any pre-tax retirement account, uh, if it goes to your kiddos, do they pay tax on that money at some point? Yes. It, it's money taxable to you, it's taxable to them, it's taxable to grandkids, however long that survives, uh, it's taxable. If I designate part of that IRA, or all of it, to a charity, and the charity receives my retirement account, so it was taxable to me, taxable to my family members, is it taxable to the church? Or the Red Cross, or United Way, no. So retirement accounts, specifically pre-tax retirement accounts, are great tools to give to charity. You know, and give the, the other ta more tax-efficient assets to the kids. So you can also do that through death, and again, a lot of foundations started this way of a $100,000 gift or endowments. 100,000, 300,000, life insurance. You got a million dollar policy, give 900,000 to the kids, 100,000 to a charity in death. The final piece, let me see how this will work. All right, Sarah, I'll let you queue up if the sound comes up here in a second. So we're going to take two minutes here in a moment. Um, and some of you might think this is a tacky exercise, but I think there's a lot of power in just, you know, visualizing, really thinking about what we want our legacy to be. You know, going back to Matthew 25, will we be the servants who were given five and returned three? Or will we be the servants that were given five and returned five? Or given seven and returned seven? And a, one piece of that be perfectly clear is financial skills and abilities and talents so we all had different starting points but our commandment is the same so I thought what would be a neat exercise uh, here in a second I'm going to play it's a video about two minutes and everybody it'll be very recognizable when we bring it up but if you just think about what you want and some of you have already put into place your legacy so again everybody's at a different place but what you want that legacy to be like and as we wrap up and, and close up this workshop, you know, what is the next step going to be for you? And, and we don't know. You know, my mom at 45 years of age didn't expect to be diagnosed with terminal cancer and be dead before 60. That was not when she was drawing up her family plans, how she thought it would play out. But ultimately for all of us, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so... As we kind of conclude, and on your table, the last piece I'll share with you is this here. So again, giving is one aspect of it is financial. And tying this all back with the cake. I had to put the picture of the, the cake to remind me. Um, you can read through this. It's a front and back. There's a Venn diagram on the back. You know, if you're, if you're sitting there thinking, hey, we, we do financially. Well, what of our abilities and talents can we give? You know, what areas can we support in the church or in the community? 
uh, this will, it's kind of an exercise to help you work through that. But the reason I put the cake, so we started with a big cake, a week one, and that was our own cake. And, and again, some of us have bigger cakes than others. That was the budget, the spending plan of, of what we had to work with financially. The reason I did a smaller cake, uh, one, it's easier to, to deal with, but more importantly than that, was that when you read the book and you read Matthew 25, you know, each of us were entrusted as, with part of God's kingdom, you know, of the larger cake. So we all have a smaller piece of that larger cake, and ultimately that question becomes, and some of that we'll talk through, but what are we going to do with it? Are we going to be good stewards? If we were given five, will we return five? If we were given seven, will we return seven? If we were given one, will we return one? So not everybody's the same. Different teachers, privileges, opportunities. Uh, we are each entrusted with part of God's fortune. Again, one piece is financial. Gifts, talents, abilities. There's so much more than just money to this. In spite of how big a piece we were given, we're all responsible for giving God a return on what He's blessed us with, with our abilities, our talents, our treasures, our time. And then the last piece I ask is that we're all just good stewards. Because I think if, you know, a lot of this is stewardship that we've talked about the last couple of weeks of just whether you have one or five or ten. Take good care of what you have, because if you can't take care of one, you certainly won't be entrusted with five.